You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you for joining us. As always, before we get into our guest for this episode, I want to remind you guys to please go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. As a matter of fact, if you're listening to this on a smartphone, you can rate and review while you're listening to the podcast, so don't hesitate. Go to iTunes, rate and review. doesn't have to be a lengthy rating. Just let people know how much you like it and give it a review as well because that's going to help us get the word out about the podcast and let others know all these amazing, incredible stories that our veterans are telling to America, and we want everybody to be part of the Hazard Ground podcast going forward. And without further ado, joining us now on the Hazard Ground podcast is Marty Scovland. He was an E6 with a total of five combat deployments to both Iraq and Afghanistan. In the 75th Ranger Regiment, that's one of the most elite fighting forces in all of the military. He is now out of the Army, and he is an author as well. His book is called The Violence of Action, The Untold Stories of the 75th Ranger Regiment in the War on Terror, and he joins us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Marty, welcome. Thank you for being here. Glad to be on the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. We always start out by asking everybody, how'd you get into the military? Why'd you join up? Uh, you know, I at, at the time, I think it was... Uh, just about every reason that a recruiter could possibly give you, uh, you know, from wanting to see the world, wanting to go fight a war, you know, have an adventure, you know, money for college. Like, <laughs> if it was on a recruiting poster, it probably sounded good to me. So um, I guess if I had to narrow it down, though, there was a war going on, and I, you know, that sounded like an amazing and a uh, adventure and something that I felt that I would probably regret if I didn't, you know, serve when my country was at war. So, uh, yeah, that was probably the biggest push. But even if there wasn't a war going on, I think I probably still would have ended up in the military. So did 9-11 itself become the impetus for you wanting to do it? So I was a freshman in high school, or maybe I was a sophomore. I was either a freshman or a sophomore in high school. So I didn't have one of those moments where I saw the plane hit the building and then you know, walk down to the recruiter's office just, you know, because I was too young. And, uh, you know, I don't – so, uh, again, I think that probably was a factor in there. Um, but if I'm being completely honest with myself, I think, again, I, I probably still would have joined the military even hadn't uh, 9-11 happened. You decided to go in the 75th Ranger Regiment, and, and that's weird because, like, that's the, that you self-select into that. Like, nobody – gets picked for it unless they want to be part of it. So, and the 75th Ranger Regiment, for those listening, uh, it's part of the special operations community. But in short, you know, this is the premier raid force of the United States Army. Like, that's their main job is to go in, snatch and grab dudes, go get them uh, wherever the bad guys are. So when you first signed up, did you know that that was something that you wanted to do? Yeah, by the time that I actually was, you know, signing the paperwork, working with the recruiter, I had narrowed it down to, yes, I want to be an Army Ranger. You know, I want to go to the 75th Ranger Regiment. You know, if I'm going to be in the military, then that's where I want to be. Uh, you know, the whole lifestyle appealed to me. You know, I, you know, flying around in helicopters, jumping out of airplanes, doing these daring raids. Uh, you know, 17-year-old Marty Scovland was all about that, so... Um, yeah, I definitely knew I wanted to be an Army Ranger. That was the goal. I signed up with a, uh infantry contract that had the Ranger option attached, attached to it. So that was definitely my goal and, uh, you know, spent my entire senior year preparing for that, you know, with the Ranger goal in mind. Well, because it's it's weird that, you know, there are people who know it. And as you just, you listed all those things. And to the average person and the average civilian listening going, yeah, let me go jump out of a plane. Yeah, let me go just do these dangerous things for the sake of doing them. And oh, by the way, I'm going to be doing them in combat as well. That seems a little bit kind of like off kilter as far as thinking is concerned. But I, I guess the question is, did you have that kind of propensity for that wild side of yourself growing up? Uh, I, I was really big into the outdoors, so I'd done a lot of kayaking and backpacking and stuff, but I, I wasn't the kid that was out skydiving, you know, when I was 16 years old. I, I wasn't like that. I wasn't out rock climbing, uh, partially because I grew up in South Dakota and, it, it, you know, there's nothing to climb around here besides maybe, you know, one of the three trees we have in the state. So, um, 
you know, I guess I was adventurous, but I wouldn't say that I was like this adrenaline junkie either that, that you might think would be the type of person that joined the Ranger Regiment. And certainly, you know, the Ranger Regiment has plenty of those adrenaline junkies there. But I think I had, you know, and still do have kind of the spirit of adventure, but not so much the guy who's constantly trying to push the, the envelope as far as, uh, you know, doing the most dangerous things I possibly can. So when you got to Ranger School... Did it deliver on all the things you thought it was going to? Because a lot of times you think, yeah, I could do this. I got it. This is easy. And then you get there and you're like, uh, here's the wake-up call. So to, to get into the, to, to the Ranger Regiment, you went through what was called the Ranger Indoctrination Program, and today is called the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. And, you know, when you get there, and that's right after airborne school. So you've already jumped out of an airplane five times. You know, you've already done your infantry training. And when, you know, the Ranger cadre pick you up on the last day of airborne school to take you down to the, you know, regiment's compound right there on Fort Benning, um, it's kind of an eye-opener because all of a sudden you see these guys, you know, just the two guys that come and pick you up. It's, you know, they're in their tan berets. They've got that scroll on their shoulder. These guys, you know, have they got the square jaws. You know, they always pick the most intimidating NCOs to come do this, and, and they are, the guys that come and pick you up are the guys who, you know, when you think of a ranger in your head, this is the picture that you had in your head, you know. And so it was very intimidating. And, of course, these guys, you know, they have their combat infantrymen's badge. They've got their jump wings. Usually most of these guys have their master parachutist wings. They have, you know, this full chest of, of you know, badges on them. And then, you know, they tell you to throw your bags in the truck and then except keep one of them on your back and we're going to run to the compound. And uh, and then you get down there and you get behind the brown fence and it's you know it's a real wake up as to okay you know I thought I was in the army before I was wrong <laughs> you know this is this is the army back here and, and immediately they start trying to get people to quit you know and it, it's not there's this feeling once you get back there and you know you haven't even started the selection process yet but at the same time selection has begun in a different sense you know if that makes any sense at all but. You know, they've already started to try to get you to quit, and you kind of realize that the rules that were there in basic training in airborne school and that, that training environment are not there. You know, you get the feeling that these guys do not care about rules, that they are here to see if, if you are fit to be in the same, you know, ranger regiment as them. And let me just clarify for the civilians listening, he talked about a scroll uh, that he wears, and Everybody in the Army wears a unit patch, and the Ranger Regiment scroll, it looks like a scroll, and it's kind of just a, almost a banner uh, that goes from left to right that says 75th Regiment on it, and it's very distinguishable. It's very noticeable uh, for the people who wear it, so that was, you know, that's an important thing uh, that, that, that Marty points out. I just wanted those kind of get the mental picture of what you were talking about. Uh, but what was the first moment when you were there that you were able to go, Oh boy, I might be in over my head. <laughs> I, you know, I never felt that way when I was going through selection. It uh, when I was there, I was very goal oriented and very much. You know, you see the other guys quitting, and that almost gave you more motivation to keep going yourself. And and you know, there, there's you have this very specific goal in mind, and there, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, which is that you know, donning that tan beret at the end of selection. It wasn't actually until I in-processed that 1st Ranger Battalion at Seco 175 and met my, my squad. And, you know, if you thought selection was intimidating, you know, again, going to the unit was a whole nother level. You know, if I thought that the rules didn't apply before at Ranger Selection, they really didn't apply, you know, at the unit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the typical rules that you associate with the Army, these guys were... You know, these were the guys literally, you know, when you met these guys, they'd gone out and killed the most dangerous terrorists in the world. They'd gone out and captured the most dangerous terrorists in the world. These were guys who already had three, four, five, six combat deployments under their belt by the time I got there. You know, and and so it was just very intimidating, like, how am I going to measure up to these guys? You know, and and I got the, you know, piss smoked out of me that entire first day, and that was the first day where I... You know, at the end of the night, I thought to myself, like, okay, did I make the right decision coming here? Am I really up to this? You know, sure, I'm in good shape, and sure, I'm motivated to be a ranger. thought I was, but now that I'm here and you see these guys, man, you know, it it felt like I was a a middle school basketball player who just stepped onto the court with, 
you know, an NBA team. It just it was completely overwhelming that first day. What sort of things did they make you do to try to quit? <laughs> um, I, <laughs> everything. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, obviously the physical aspect of it is only, you know, one part of it. Uh, the other parts are, you know, there's a lot of mental stuff that goes into it. You know, I don't want to ruin it for anybody else who, you know, might be listening that, that's going there. But there's a lot of mental games. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, I, I know one of the big things before we even started selection when we were waiting to, you know, class up for that, uh, they all of a sudden had 40 slots available for paratroopers in Italy, you know, which is a very coveted assignment in the Army. And so they got a lot of guys to quit that way because, you know, you have all these guys that are a little bit unsure about whether they're going to make it through selection. And, and, you know, they might end up in some, you know, crappy Army outpost somewhere. But, hey, here's a guarantee that I can go to Italy. You know, so they got a lot of guys to quit that way. And, and they did go to Italy, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there were, you know, obviously the long hours of physical, you know, smokings, as we called them. You know, of course, that's a big part. And then there were other, you know, mental games. One of the biggest things that they do is you do coal range, which is, uh, I guess, our version of, you know, a lot of people have heard of Hell Week for the SEALs. Uh, for us, we have coal range. And that's about a four-and-a-half-day exercise out in the, the woods of Fort Benning where you, you know, the worst of the worst happens out there as far as getting guys to quit. Can you enlighten us as to what the worst of the worst is? Uh, you know, that if there was any point where I was close to quitting, it would have been out there. Um, and for me, it came right. So we were doing this. It, it was like a medical obstacle course that was set up in the swamp part of the forest. And, and so there was all this, you know, probably 18 to 24-inch deep water, you know, swamp water. And because I, you know, I'm a six foot five guy, I was like six five, two twenty then. And because I'm one of the bigger guys, I was the guy they had to put in the, uh, the Skedco or, or the, you know, the stretcher, I guess, in civilian terms, um, you know, because I'm big and heavy and it would suck for other people to have to carry me. And so you'd think almost that I was getting off easy, but the, probably the closest that I ever got to quitting was being in that Skedco because they had to get me up over these walls and because they got so exhausted they kept dropping me in the water and leaving me submerged under there because I'd get stuck to the bottom of the mud. And uh, it just, you know, it was like being waterboarded, I guess. Wow. You know, and you're out there, you're cold, and then you're getting lifted up over these walls. Your eyes are covered in mud, so you can't see what's going on. And you're like, man, if these, if these guys drop me, you know, these guys are already exhausted. They're already dropping me just regularly. Now they got to get me over these different walls and through these obstacles and stuff. If they drop me, I might break my neck or something. You know, and so that was, you know, <laughs> again, for being just having to basically lie there, I was very close to calling it quits because I, I was, you know, I didn't know if I was going to drown or break my neck or, or what. It, it got very real for a minute there. Could you tell who the guys who were more likely to quit were just by looking at them? Or did anybody, you know, a couple of moments, minutes, hours into the whole process, you looked at him, you go, that guy's not going to last. Uh, you know, I thought I could, but I was wrong almost every time. Really? Yeah, you know, because it's not, you know, outward appearances are not always the best, uh, you know, indicator of a guy's heart, you know. And th there were some guys that you just thought he's too small or he's, he's too big or he's, you know, this, that, or the other, you know, too soft-spoken, you know. And you thought, well, this kid's never going to make it, you know. And, and then all of a sudden, they're the ones that are standing there at the end, you know. And then there were other guys who were in impeccable physical shape, you know, former D1 athletes who just didn't have the heart and, and you know, gave up even though they were more than physically capable. And, and so, yeah, you didn't always, you know, who made it didn't always match up with what, you know, the stereotype might be, it, you know, if that makes any sense, I guess. It, it's, it's a weird thing to witness. No, it certainly does. I mean, we've talked to a bunch of people in the special operations realm who echo that same sentiment that it's really about the size of the fight and the dog, not about the size of the dog and the fight, to use an old cliche that many people would understand. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, the physical aspects are there, but the teamwork aspect really is big in the special ops community because you're doing more with less. And those are the guys who really know how to make teams work and guys work together and do things for the guy next year. Those are the guys who end up surviving the most. Yeah, it, it, exactly. If you're not a team player, and that's where you do find a lot of guys who played high school sports or, or college sports, they typically do do pretty well 
uh, just because they're already work, used to working in that team environment. You know, the team is, is bigger than, than the individual. And, uh, you know, being honest, you know, pulling your fair share of your weight and, and all of those things that sound simple, you know, they, they sound like that's common sense. But then when you get out there and things really start to suck, some guys, you know, they start to, again, not carry their weight. They start to think that maybe they deserve rest more than the next guy. And, and those are the guys that, you know, ultimately don't make it. And, and nor should they. All right, so you went on five deployments uh, in the War on Terror. And as I said earlier, you know, the, the, the 75th Ranger Regiment is responsible for killing or capturing more high-value targets than any other unit in the military during the War on Terror. So when you're getting set to deploy and you're going into Iraq and or Afghanistan, and I don't remember where all five of your deployments were, but the point is when you go into that environment, do you have to do like a mental change, a mental shift, or are you already mentally prepared for everything ahead of you? Uh, you know, uh, so I did three to Iraq and two to Afghanistan, and my first was to Iraq, and that was only about, you know, two months after I graduated the, the selection course, you know, to even become a ranger. So it all happened really, really fast. And I think that first deployment, you know, when I first got there, I was more concerned with not messing up, with not disappointing you know, the people in my squad that I, uh, you know, I didn't really have time to sit there and think about the, you know, the macro view of what I was actually doing, you know. And we did something like 100 or 110 missions in that deployment in about 90 days or 100 days or something like that. I mean, so it was an incredible pace that we were going. And I just, I guess I never really stopped to think, you know, in retrospect now, of course, it's like, wow, that's, you know, uh, what what an incredible opportunity for me to have. But, uh, you know, at the time, it was just trying to keep up, just trying to, you know, again, you know, every day is a job interview, you know. So it was more just, you know, trying to continue to earn my keep there so that I could stick around another day longer. Um, you know, by the end, I think it was my fourth deployment that I actually stopped. Um, we were getting ready for a mission. This was in Iraq again. And we were in the ready room, kidding up for, you know, to go out another night. And You know, there's nothing special that happened on that mission or anything like that. But I remember sitting there in that ready room at the rest of the platoon, you know, as everybody's getting stuff on and, and, you know, kind of putting their game faces on. And that was finally when it hit me. And ultimately this is the moment that read, led to my writing career, but it was when it really hit me of, wow, I'm literally standing amongst, you know, some of the greatest warriors that have walked the planet since the, you know, the Spartans at Thermopylae. You know, these guys are, I, I literally just thinking about it right now, it gives me chills. I just kind of chill at my back. It, mm-hmm. You know, just going back to that moment, looking at the men that I was in there with, it just, you know, I, I was a, a man amongst giants. It just, it was incredible, and it really hit me in that moment. And, and that was a moment that stuck with me for a long time, you know, when I really did look at it from that macro view. You talked about doing 110 missions in a 90-day span. I mean, the, the tempo was just unreal. I mean, I, I supported the SF in my first deployment, and I thought my op tempo was high, you know, when I was doing a mission about once every two or three days, and, and that to me seemed, you know, high. But when you're moving at that pace, I wonder how hard is it to stay focused? How hard is it to to not, uh, you know, kind of get dull around the edges, so to speak? That's why they are only 90 or 100 days long. Um because of that pace, you know, there's no way that you could keep that pace up for six, nine, 12 months. It just, there's, there's no possible way. So that was why we had those shorter, you know, three to four month deployments typically is just because we went at such a pace that you, you would burn out and you would fray around the edges if you didn't. And I would say, you know, at, at the iterations that we went about six months, uh, training rotations to about, you know, three to four month deployments. By the time that we were leaving for deployment, we were ready to be done with the training cycle. And by the time that we were, uh, by the time that we were done with the deployment, we were ready to be done with the deployment. So it it was spaced out perfectly. When does killing and capturing bad guys begin to get mundane? Ah. Uh. Well, I mean, because at that pace, like when you do something that often, that rapidly, in that succession, in that short a time, at some point in time, it, you know, things become muscle memory, and you're not really thinking through it. You're just kind of, you know, reacting, acting on on what you know. So, I mean, like, it, given that combat is always a, a, a wild card, a question mark that you don't know. I guess there is some newness to it, but I guess, you know, the, the just the the nature of doing bad things to bad people does that ever get mundane? You know, I think 
I think over the course of those deployments, your bar for what is exciting continues to go up. You know, my my first deployment, my first mission, it was like, wow, I'm going out on a mission. This is a big deal. Mm-hmm. We're going out. This, this is what I trained for, you know. Uh, by that fifth deployment, it was like, ugh, I guess we're going. It's an offset tonight, you know, son of a gun, like this is going to suck. You know, we got to walk 8K tonight. This is going to suck, you know. So the, the newness of going out on a mission had worn off, and now it was like, okay, what kind of target are we going after? Is it is it is he really high up the pecking order? You know, how are we getting? Are we landing on the X? Are we going to be fast roping? Are we, you know, uh, is there is there rumored foreign fighters that will be there that w- want to fight to their death, you know? So I think your bar for what gets you excited definitely goes up the more you know, the more missions that you do, the more deployments that you do. And I would say that that was it for me. But again, too, when I compare my first to my last deployment, that first one, it was just trying to do a good job and trying to prove myself. Whereas my last one, it was kind of savoring the moment because I knew it was my last deployment. And and I knew how I, I would, you know, I guess I had that, that knowledge that I would never do anything like this again once I quit and that I would miss it in some ways, which I was correct about. Um, but I think by that last deployment, you know, it took me more to get excited, but I definitely was appreciating what I was doing a lot more, if that makes sense. Can you take the listeners through a typical raid from start to finish? Like, you know, when not, not even when you get the mission. I mean, just from the – when you wake up and that day you know you're going to be doing something – all the way through the end. And I know none of them are exactly the same, but just kind of give me a general overview. Yeah, no, there definitely was kind of a typical rhythm to the days and the nights. Uh, and Iraq and Afghanistan were both different. Uh, in Iraq, it was typically a lot shorter notice before missions. You would wake up around 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, go, you know, get ready for the night, get get a mission briefing, usually by 6, 6.30, and then around sundown you would head out and uh, and usually load birds or, or load vehicles, depending on the mission, uh, do your infill process, and then depending on whether you were landing right on the target or, or, or doing an offset, you know, you might have a, a walk-in. And once you complete that walk, then it's, you know, you set in your different forces or, you know, your different elements, I guess, and and then you kind of go through the process of breaching, clearing, securing, and then doing... Uh, kind of like a, we call it SSE, you know, sensitive site exploitation, but it's kind of like doing the CSI aspect of, you know, collecting evidence and, and intelligence and all that sort of stuff. And then and then you're off the target as fast as you can and, and back to the base, hand off detainees, and then uh, work out, get some, uh, get some breakfast in the early morning at that point, and then watch probably two to eight hours of The Office or The OC or whatever other movie <laughs> or, or play Halo or Call of Duty. Um, and then repeat, <laughs> rinse, wash, and repeat. <laughs> Not a bad lifestyle, actually, when you look at it in the big picture. Um, when you are told that you're going to go get a high-value target, like a guy that you know is high on the list and, and everything else, is it harder not to get more nervous or more excited on that mission than other ones? Uh, I think you get more excited. I mean, there's high-value targets, and then there's high-value targets, right? So we never really went after anybody that wasn't at least fairly high on the on the food chain. But when it was like, you know, you're going after the number two guy behind Zarqawi or or the number two guy to Bin Laden or something like that, then it's kind of like, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> you know, you definitely – I don't think people get nervous so much as they get, like, really excited of, wow, this is this potentially is going to be huge, you know. Uh, so I think people definitely get more excited when they know it's going to be. But ultimately what we do, the process is no different. You're still going to do the same things. You're still going to go through the same motions. You're going to hit that. You know, the, the, the way the Bin Laden target was taken down is the same way that thousands of targets like it were, were done before that. You know, like it, 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 the process doesn't change just because it's a bigger dude. So when you go on these raids over and over again and things go well, how do you react when things don't go well? Uh, you, you know, you fall back on your training, I guess. And I never had any missions that went so significantly bad that it resulted in, you know, loss of life or anything like that. But 
there were definitely targets. I mean, my last deployment in Afghanistan, our helicopter crash landed. Uh, my first deployment, we were put down on the wrong target and, and you know, zip-tied an entire family that was not the right family before we oh. figured it out. And we're like, all right, we got to go run a K to the, you know, to the north, you know, and get the right house. And now our element of surprise is gone. And, you know, so th- there were definitely times that it went wrong, but it was just, you know, I suppose it's no different than calling an audible on the football field. Is you know you rely on your training, your practices, and and you're going to go do the best that you can under the circumstances that you're in. You know, it's. I think that you know you're obviously not going to just throw in the towel and say, oh, well things went wrong and, and time to go home." It's you know you're going to still try to accomplish the mission and uh, you know do the best that you can with what you have. Is there a raid that stands out to you more than others that you remember? Um, yeah, there's a few. There's a few that definitely stand out. Uh, there was one, my last deployment, where we literally had to call, uh, well, we, we called in airstrike almost the entire way there because we had, I don't know, like an 8 or a 9K offset that we had to do through a really bad neighborhood in the mountains of Afghanistan. And, and you know, once we finally got to the target, oh, and on the way there, one of the F-16 pilots uh, that was overhead with us, mistook us for a, comp- or a platoon-sized element of Taliban moving our way. Ooh. So we literally heard over the radio, hey, you've got, you know, 30 to 40 fighting-age males uh, with, with weapons moving in your direction. What She was actually looking at us but didn't realize it. And so we're sitting here like, oh, man, this is going to be a rough night, <laughs> you know. And it was one of those come-to-Jesus moments where you're like, okay, well, this is going to be something they write books about, like, or they make movies about, because that is a massive force, you know, to, to be going up against when you, you know, typically the military wants three to one odds, and, and that would have been one to one. And then we find out five minutes later that, oh, yeah, my bad, guys, that, that's you guys. So Yeah, that doesn't go over. That doesn't brief. Well. Oh, my bad. Yeah. Me- meanwhile, I need a new pair of underwear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, had I been wearing underwear, I would have needed a new <laughs> pair. Um, no, and, and then when we finally got to the target, the, the target itself was like this mini castle sitting on top of a, a mini mountain, I guess, for lack of a better term for it. I, I hate calling it a hill because hill denotes that it, there was a gradual, you know, incline. This was not gradual. It was, we were literally climbing with our hands and feet to get to the top of this thing and then, you know, had to clear it. And, and there was a cow sitting in the living room and that wasn't so weird, actually. The cow, the cow in the living room was actually the most normal part of that entire mission. But that's one that definitely stands out among among a few others. But yeah, you know things are bad when you could say a cow in the living room was the most normal part of your given day because you know that's just in general not normal. But let me ask you this much because uh, you know when you do your line of work, and I, I don't I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but you know the line of work you have chosen is obviously to do bad things to bad dudes and. I wonder how moralism works for you. I mean, at what point in time did did that stop becoming an issue? Was it ever an issue? And and how did you react to it? You know, I I think the one thing I'm really proud about with the Ranger Regiment is morals never quit being an issue. It was always holding yourself to a higher standard. It was always, we're not going to sink into this area where it becomes okay to... uh, you know, break rules of engagement or break the, the you know, law of land warfare or, or things like that. You know, they're, they're, you know, the regiment prides itself on standards and they hold to that, whether it's, you know, showing up to work on time during the training cycle or it's how you conduct yourself on the battlefield. And that's something that to this day I'm still very proud about. Uh, there was almost without exception um, a very high standard for how you, conducted yourself. And so there were very few times that I found myself in, in morally ambiguous situations. And the few times that I did, it wasn't so much about like, you know, did the wrong person get killed or something like that. It was more of, you know, for example, there's, there was one time on a target in Iraq on my, oh, one of the times I went to Iraq, <laughs> <laughs> I forget which one it was, but, um, you know, this guy's, you know, this guy had a couple of sons and, and, you know, he, he didn't make it past you know, this guy didn't live past the, uh, you know, the initial clearing of the house because he decided to go for a gun. And anyways, we get done clearing it, and, and these guys, you know, his sons who are all fighting each males are moved outside, flex cuffs and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I'm the guy that's got to sit 
sit there and, and keep an eye on them. And, uh, you know, the thing about going after high-value targets is a lot of them are very well-educated, so they speak English as well as their family members speak English a lot of times. So I'm sitting here out there watching this, these guys, and this guy's son, one of his sons, looks up and asks me, you know, uh, is my dad dead? I, I think I heard shots. And I flat out lied to his face just because I was too much of a coward to tell him that his dad was dead. You know, like literally his dad's in there laying there with his, his head caved in, and I was too much of a coward to tell him that, yeah, your dad's dead. And I lied to him, and I, and I gave him that false hope that he would, at the end of all of this, be able to go back in and see his father. And, um, you know, that's something, it, it sounds minuscule compared to what some guys go through and, and, you know, survivor's guilt and things like that, which, you know, luckily I, I, I don't really deal with those issues. But, you know, that's one thing that's always kind of stood out to me. of Like, wow, I was really a, cow, a, a moral coward in that, in that moment. And it's something that I wish I could go back and change, but obviously that's not, <laughs> you know, that's not realistic. So, I think it's very interesting. Like, I, I am, I am literally stunned isn't the right word. I, I'm just, I'm processing this because if that is your definition of being a moral coward, I, I think we all have a lot to live up to going forward. I mean, you know, and and the thing is, is this, like. <sighs> When you do your job, again, I go back to this. When you do your job, that I get why that's a big thing for you. Because you, you work with such precision. You work with such accuracy. And every little detail matters. And yeah. for that detail to bother you, I, I sort of get it. But in the big picture, as a you know person who kind of can see the big picture, to me that's like, wow. Yeah, again, I think it's because you're, you're taught to hold a, you know, keep, hold yourself to a high standard and, and it's something that stays with you forever. You know, to this day, I, I measure myself of, you know, what would my Ranger buddies think about what I'm doing right now, you know? And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, because we're going out and doing these, these high risk, you know, missions against high value targets every night that you're, you know, stacking dozens of bodies every night and, and doing all, you know, no, it's not like that because we go, you know, and move with such speed, surprise, and violence of action, you know, it's not this constant, you know, of course there's the bigger battles that did happen, of course, but that's not every night. Every night is, is, is you're moving with such precision, with such surgical precision. This nights that where literally the bad guy is woken up by a nudge from your, your muzzle, you know, because you cleared the entire house without waking a person up. That's the kind of precision that we, that we had, you know, during those deployments and it's, it's really kind of awesome to think about, but yeah, you know, it's, you know, I guess if you bring up morals, I didn't struggle with a lot morally with what we were doing, but you know, it, it was some of the small things, I guess, that got, that got to me. Did you ever reconcile in your head why you lied? You know, I thought, of, you know, when I do think about it, I do, you know, I, I don't know what that, I don't know what that answer is, and I'm not sure. Again, outside of just straight-up moral cowardice, just being too much of a coward to tell this kid, you know, this 16, 17-year-old kid that his dad was, you know, dead. I just, you know, which is something that, you know, how many doctors across the nation or, or paramedics or whatever have to tell a family member that their family member is dead? You know what I mean? It's not an uncommon thing for people to have to do in this world. And for whatever reason, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it took me off guard. I'm not sure. But, yeah, he asked me, and the thing was, I didn't even answer him kindly. I, I answered him kind of, snar like, with a snarky, like, sarcastic, like, no, shut up, you know. Like, I'm sure I told him to shut up or shut the F up, you know. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, you know what's crazy is that, to me, and forgive my Psych 101 analysis here, Marty, is that, you know, there is a moment of compassion in a situation where nothing is compassionate. Like, really, I mean, you know, you're in the middle of combat, you're doing, again, bad things, um, and, and and taking people off the face of the earth, and there was a moment inside you that said, you know what, I don't want to deliver bad news to this young man, and you call it moral cowardice. It wasn't, it, it wasn't that, though. It wasn't that I had, that I was saving him, you know, the, the, the bad news. It wasn't even that. It was literally just me being an asshole. There was no higher calling there when I, when I told him that his dad was still alive. Like, it, it was me being an asshole, like, and, there, and there's no way to get around that. You know, I'm gonna be, and there's no reason for me to lie about it now. You know? like, there, there was no 
uh, you know, silver lining to what I did there. It was just a morally coward thing for me to do. When you look back at your time in the regiment, uh, you know, that moment aside, was there anything else that stands out to you as a, a moment where you were less ranger than you were supposed to be? Oh, as far as less ranger than I was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we're just talking straight up rangering skills uh, and not morals here, um, yeah. There, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so I am not the poster boy for, like, you know, the guy that is going to be in the Ranger Hall of Fame. I was a guy who struggled every day that I was there to keep up. Um, I was mediocre on a good day, I would say, as far as being a ranger goes. Literally, a lot of these guys are the best in the world at what they do. And so, you know, many of the guys that I served with are now doing things that nobody will ever know about. You know, they, they won't be doing podcasts anytime soon, to you know, put it that way. And these, that's the caliber of person that you're serving with. And, uh, you know... I was very aware of the fact that I was not, uh, I was not the guy that was going to bring everybody home. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, right. I was, I was doing my best every single day, and I put everything I had into it. But I definitely was not the hero of the battlefield or the best ranger that served during that time, or or anything like that. And there was plenty of mistakes that I made. I wonder because you're, you know, not supposed to and not allowed in certain cases to talk about some of the things that you experienced and that you did, how much of that is hard to kind of continue to carry with you? I mean, not that they, I would think like it's an emotional burden per se, but you're kind of living this, this double life almost. Uh, I don't know. I guess I never thought about it that way. It didn't feel like a double life. You know, the people that were close to me knew you know, that we were going overseas and, you know, that we were a special operations unit and, and that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be details that don't need to be talked about. And, and of course, there's always, you know, especially while you're actively serving, there's operational security, you know. Um, and, and the older you get and that sort of stuff and, and the more distance between there and declassification of things, the more you can talk about. But, no, I mean, I never really felt like there was this huge burden of I have to keep this deep, dark secret or anything like that. It was just like, you know, work is work and, and play is play. And, yeah, no big deal, you know. Earlier this year, you wrote a column uh, on a website called taskandpurpose.com about yep. females entering the 75th Ranger Regiment. Now, we have had several females on this podcast who have all broken glass ceilings, have all shattered barriers that weren't there before. Uh, and mm-hmm. we applaud them greatly, and I, I think they're outstanding soldiers. I think they're outstanding leaders and all that kind of stuff. But this is a little bit of a different egg. This is a little bit of a different deal when all of a sudden there's a female in this regiment. If you can, mm-hmm. just you know, summarize the column for everybody, and then I want to kind of get into more of your, your personal stance on it. Yeah, uh, so there is a military intelligence officer who has made it through the ranger assessment selection process and uh, is in the beginning stages of her career in the 75th Ranger Regiment. And I don't, uh, I can't really say what that means, but, you know, she's doing the things necessary to get her career off the ground right now, but, but did pass the selection process. And, uh, oh, you know, from what I understand, met all the standards. Uh, you know, this is different than Ranger School. This isn't a big Army leadership school. This was the selection process to get into the 75th Ranger Regiment, and, uh, and she passed it. So, um, yeah, that, I guess that's kind of the summary of, of what happened. And uh, like I said, she's somewhere along her journey into being fully operational. So where do you sit on this? Because there is, look, I am all for, you know, females being part of the military, but and a lot of the females we've talked to said, look, if you, you haven't found a female to graduate ranger school, it's because you're asking the wrong females. Like, they, that was generally the lot. And I kind of agree with that. Like, you're, there's not a lot of females in the military, so the, pop, the, the population to choose from is small. But you've got to find the right ones, and I think that they're there. Does that same sort of theory apply if you haven't found somebody enough females to get in the 75th Ranger Regiment? It's because you're not asking the right ones. Yeah, you know, and, you know, they found one. So I think that proves the point right there. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't, you know, is the selection process extremely difficult? Yeah, of course. Do I, am I so chauvinistic to think that there is no female anywhere in the world that could pass the 
the selection process? No, absolutely not. I'm sure there's more than a few. Um, it, the, the problem doesn't lie in, you know, can they pass selection or not. That, that you know, especially in retrospect, you think it's a big deal when you pass it at the time. Nobody really cares. <laughs> like, that's the bare minimum. That's uh, hey, that, Congratulations, you learned how to write your name it is basically what that means. Uh, now let's see if you make it day-to-day. And there's a lot of people that pass selection that don't make it even six months in the regiment. So the real test is once you get there, and, and like I said, that was all I was concerned with when I first got there was trying to make it, trying to survive another day without getting the boot, you know. And uh, it happens very it is a very common thing, I guess. And so that's the real challenge, you know, is, is can they keep up day to day? And, and again, are there some that are out there? Yeah, absolutely. I think my biggest concern is not so much whether, you know, uh, should there be females that go to the range regiment or special operations. It's more uh, where can we, where can they be best used? And are they meeting the same standards that have been set forth? You know, those are my big things. As long as those are happening, then, you know, I don't really care one way or the other, I guess, because ultimately it's about accomplishment of the mission. And if, you know, the mission is getting accomplished and, and there's no, you know, huge setbacks that occur from it, then great, why not, you know? I don't want to ask you to speak for anybody else or the entire 75th Ranger measurement as a whole, but how do you think this is being received right now among guys wearing a tan beret? Uh, that. Among guys that are already in, I think a lot of them share kind of the same view of, hey, yeah, if they can keep up and and they can do their job and, and be a, you know, in addition to the, the platoon, not a distraction, then, yeah, sure, why not, you know? I, I mean, look, we've got guys that are deploying right now that are overseas in Iraq right now, um, Syria right now, who have literally 18 deployments under their belt. 18 deployments, thousands of direct action missions. You know, you've got some of these guys that they just don't care, like, okay, whatever, can you keep up or not? You know, they've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of guys who couldn't. So, you know, the addition of a female, it's like, okay, can she keep up or not? I don't have time or the the the, the mental capacity to, to rack my brains about the, the philosophical, you know, angles on this. It's, I'm busy. You know, I'm going on my 19th deployment next month, I've got things to worry about besides what big army leadership decides as far as female integration into, you know, special operations goes. So I think that's, I think that's the sentiment that is within the Ranger Regiment right now. Why did you ultimately decide to leave the, the regiment and the army? Uh, you know, so I finished my fifth deployment and I volunteered to go be a recruiter because I'd just been married. And my wife wanted to, uh, you know, move back up to Boston, and uh, where where she was from. And I was not ready to get out of the military, so I kind of thought, well, why don't I go do recruiting? Because with recruiting, you can literally go anywhere in the country. So maybe I could go to a recruiting station up in Boston, do that for a couple years, let her spend some time with family. I'll take a break myself. And and then we'll you know I'll come back and I had some other goals within the special operations world that I wanted to accomplish, and so we went and did that you know and I went and did recruiting you know the army being the way it is I didn't end up going to Boston despite the guarantee that USERF gave me and uh, I went to Central New York about 45 minutes west of Syracuse instead so uh, they only missed the target by about six hours and uh, so we spent three years up there. And uh, it was at that time, I think it was in my third year of recruiting, that I uh, wrote down, you know, that, that time in the ready room that I told you about earlier that really stayed with me. I decided to kind of put pen to paper on that and wrote this little description of that moment for me, put it on Facebook, and it kind of went viral through the, the Ranger community. And before I knew it, there were guys asking me about putting that on a T-shirt or on a poster or something. And, and uh, from that, my first business was born, and, and that business did well enough. I mean... We uh, I, we were in the middle of a home renovation at the time, so I think I took $600 out of my measly staff sergeant paycheck, you know, in the middle of a home renovation to buy a web domain and, and kind of do the, those basic bare minimums for setting up a business. And, and that's all the money I put into it, but we still grossed $100,000 uh, that first year off that $600 initial investment. And that was good enough for me to say, well, 
maybe I should see this whole business thing through. And, and so that's when I decided to uh, not re-enlist and, and to get out and pursue, uh, you know, a business full-time. So, Well, circle it back for me because you talked about the ready room and what you wrote down. Share some of those thoughts. I, it was just a very vivid description of what I saw of, of, you know, what I wrote, which is I later became part of the introduction in the book, Violence of Action. Uh, you, you see that included during the introduction there. But it's a very vivid description of, you know, a ranger getting ready for a mission and the thoughts that are going through his head and, and uh, you, know, you know, being this man amongst giants and, and how particular he is about everything that he does, that this, this, you know, routine that he goes through before every mission. And, and uh, I, think, I think the reason it did so well is because, you know, so many rangers can identify with that. You know, they all, I, I described you know, what was the reality for a lot of guys, you know, over the course of many years of the, what will be some of the most important work they've ever done. So. Well, what is that reality? I mean, you, you have me hanging right now. I'm curious. Uh, there's not, well, that's the thing. There's not, it's not like this was a, a, a traditional narrative structure. This is a page long, just describing a guy getting ready. You know, it, 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 it's literally just him going through putting the nods on you know, wiping off his his uh, glasses, you know, pulling the charging ba- handle back and, and racking around in it. and uh, going through that mental checklist of, okay, do I have this, do I have that, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the places that are worn on his uniform. And, and you know, it's just, it's a very descriptive uh, piece of prose on, on, you know, what a ranger looks like getting ready, I guess. Did it ever get made so into a T-shirt? It's not a moral to the story by any means. Did it did it ever get made into a T-shirt? Uh, I never did a T-shirt, but I did put it on an art print uh, that we had worked with a graphic designer on to make this really great uh, print on, and and so we sold it as an art print, and then later, like I said, it became uh, one of the opening pieces of Violence of Action, which I thought was a very fitting way to set the stage for that book. Well, tell me more about the book. You know, obviously the impetus for writing it, and you talked about the introduction, but what other things are in it? Uh, yeah, so the book, I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And it was at the beginning of my, I guess, career as a writer, you know, now a career, but at the time I was just feeling it out. So, yeah, of course, there's certain things that I think I would have done differently, but the book covers uh, from September 11th, 2001 to September 11th, 2011, uh, the exploits of the 75th Ranger Regiment as told through about 40 different people's own experiences. So I think we've got about 36 Rangers, a a gold star mother who lost her son on his 14th deployment as a ranger. Oh. Uh, we've got a uh, ranger wife that also wrote a piece in there, as well as a uh, military intelligence guy who supported our task force overseas. So we have three non-rangers in there as well, but they're, I think, very pertinent to the story. Uh, but the rest of them are all rangers, and they cover everything from what it was like to jump into Afghanistan, you know, just a mere couple weeks after 9-11, and, and spearhead that whole thing, and uh, all the way up until 2011, when you're kind of in the dog days of of Afghanistan and this this never-ending war that we seem to have found ourselves in, uh, and everything in between, big missions, little missions, uh, you know, hostage recoveries, uh, you know, the, the raids, guys getting shot, guys getting killed, you know, it's it, you know, it, there's some very philosophical stuff in there, like what it's like to kill a person the first time that uh, one one of the writers wrote about, and then there's also kind of some lighthearted stuff in there about, you know, just some of the funny stuff that happens on deployment, like, you know, clogging one of the, the toilets up over there with one of those massive MRE protein powder turds uh, that you get over there. So <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it's everything, you know, it's, it's all encompassing of the, the Ranger experience uh, during those first 10 years. When you hear the other people tell the story and, and, you know, you write about the stories, how much of that vision syncs up with exactly how you feel? Um, you know, I think we're all kind of cut from the same cloth. And for that reason, although there's a lot of stuff that's in there that I didn't experience, because, look, my first appointment wasn't until 2006, and we'd already been at war for four and a half years at that point. So, of course, there's stuff at the beginning, you know, what it's like to invade a country. Like, I don't know what it's like to invade a country and, and what it was like to jump into Iraq and or what it was like to jump into Afghanistan and, and, you know, do that sort of stuff. So that was really interesting for me to read about. But at the same time, you know, talking to these guys about this stuff was all very familiar. It's all very, 
you know, even though the time was different or the mission was different or the circumstances were different, it all felt very, very familiar just because, you know, again, like I said, we're, we're all cut from the same cloth and think about things in very similar ways and have the same sense of humor and, and yeah. <laughs> so what do you take with you from the regiment more than anything in the second phase of your, or this phase of your life? Uh, incredibly high standards for myself because there is, you know, like I said, there, there are better men than me that have worn that tan beret and, and there are better men than me that are now no longer with us. So I, I think that whatever path that I take in life, which, you know, currently is, you know, being a, a father, a husband, a, a writer and a filmmaker, you know, I, I think that I am charged with, due to, the, due to my history as a ranger, I owe that title nothing less than to give my current endeavors everything that I have, 110% and then some. And, and you know, I think that is what you take away from the regiment is this just incredibly high standard for excellence that, that you know, you feel guilty if you're not doing your best on any given thing. And uh, there's definitely been a lot of long nights for me trying to get stuff perfect and, and pursuing that, that standard of excellence. And, and, you know, you don't always get there. You, you still make mistakes, and the reality of that is there. But, you know, you know that you have a, a, a title to live up to, and, and you're going to do your best to, to do just that, to live up to it and live up to the people that share that title with you because certainly they are, they are better, you know, they are better than me there to share the same title as I do, and I need to do them justice. Well, I can tell you everybody listening uh, believes that you have done everybody justice. You've done us all justice, and certainly your time in the uniform, uh, more than anything, has done you justice. Again, the book is called Violence of Action, the Untold Stories of the 75th Ranger Regiment in the War on Terror. Marty, thank you so much for your time uh, and certainly your candor and your honesty and just sharing your story with us, man. I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm proud to have served with you. I, I know you're on to different and better things in life, but... Uh, you know, certainly, uh, I, I just from putting the uniform on for as long as I have, I know a lot of this stuff will never leave you, and you'll always be a ranger at heart, and for that, we always thank you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show... Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.